You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is September 9th, 2021. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, what I wanted to begin to talk about tonight was uh, meaningfulness or finding meaningfulness. Uh, And really, if we look at that through the attachment lens, what that means is exploration. How do you explore things that you find satisfying and meaningful? And uh, when when we talk about exploration in that way, what we're really talking about is primary exploration where the activity or the exploration itself is satisfying and secondary exploration where the um, point of the exploration is to gather the resources that you need so that you can either support your uh, primary uh, um, exploration or um, you can have the resources that you need to transact care. when when you look at uh, the the attachment lens or put the attachment lens on it, um, you have the attachment system and the exploration system which are linked, and then you also have the collaboration system. So these three primary modes of engaging uh, the world. The attachment mechanism goes off when there's the perception of uh, of danger uh, or fear. And what it does is propel you to seek proximity to somebody who you see as a protector. Um, So physical proximity to somebody who will protect you is what causes, uh, what happens when the attachment system goes off. In order for that to really happen well, the exploration system needs to shut down so that you abandon your exploration and seek proximity to somebody who you think will protect you. Um, So in childhood, of course, that's uh, to your caregivers, if you have the perception that your caregivers will be uh, protective. When we look at it through the meditation lens, then what we're really talking about here is uh, exploring uh, the, the, the path of Dharma and uh, and uh, what the, the goal for that might be. Uh, I would say that a primary path for meditation then would be um, liberation, and that secondary paths can be uh, increased happiness or stress reduction or uh, something like that. Um, One of the things that I notice, and one of the reasons why I teach the way that I do, uh, focusing on uh, attachment, is that in the meditation uh, formulation or the poetry of of meditation uh, descriptions, um, they talk about things uh, in a way that is sometimes magical or, or impractical in terms of discovering. Whereas um, because we're Western, because we're used to um, formulating things in terms of psychology, um, 
it can be useful to uh, find ways of motivating yourself to practice. Uh, and usually we come to practice uh, for a particular uh, reason. Um, I think that in the West, even with mindfulness uh, having the 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 uh, expanse uh, in people's understanding of things, um, we're still mainly coming to deep meditation practice because uh, of uh, 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 an unsatisfactoriness in life um, or a suffering experience of life. Often people who end up coming to meditation come because the conventional paths of relieving suffering have, have not worked well enough that the suffering has been relieved and so they're continuing to seek solutions to that. Uh, The, um, the secularizing of meditation uh, happened, if, uh, uh, if you look at the, the brief history of, uh, of meditation in the West, really uh, the first uh, um, strong popular presence of meditation came through the Zen world in the, the late 50s. Uh, that caused people to go to Asia and explore and come back. Uh, you know, hippie times uh, were there. Uh, <laughs> I do love that hippie time fashions are cycling back. You know, uh, soon we'll all be wearing bell bottoms again. But um, <clears throat> uh, then in the, the late 60s and early 70s, people came back. And um, in uh, this country uh, and uh, in, in the West, largely uh, Catholic or Protestant, there was a lot of push uh, back against uh, 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 popularizing Buddhist teachings, mainly because uh, it's often, Buddhist teachings are often interpreted as anti-theistic or at least non-theistic. Um, and so there was a, a process of wanting to reduce conflict uh, that uh, led to, I think, a secularization or a, uh, or a softening of the, the teachings. Uh, if you've ever been around monastic teachings or uh, monastic uh, people, sometimes there's a rigidity that, and an emphaticness that comes with the way that they uh, teach. Um, There is also in the West this idea that householders cannot become enlightened, and, and a lot of that comes from, I think, the uh, Thai forest tradition, which really holds that pretty solidly. Um, and uh, so that the practices then became uh, more simplistic and less oriented toward enlightenment. Um, I remember the first uh, cl class that I uh, took when I moved to Los Angeles in 1992 in Vipassana, the, uh, the teacher went around and asked everybody why they came to class. And I said um, optimistically that really the reason I came to meditation was I wanted to be enlightened. And it erupted in an unkind laughter that that wasn't really possible for householders. We would have to uh, become a monastic. I've never uh, found monastic life that appealing. 
Um, I, I like the, the experience of the world. Um, so um, what I did was look around for a teacher and, and I found Shinzen and Shinzen uh, from the very beginning sa said that he was an uh, enlightenment oriented teacher and that that should be the long goal of that. I, my other uh, teacher now is Dan Brown and he also uh, says that and that uh, his gripe with the, the, the way that meditation has, uh, particularly through the mindfulness uh, uh, exposures, has lost that as the, the, the long goal. So I think that when we talk about meaning making and talking about exploration in terms of meditation, that really uh, for meditation, the long goal then is liberation in a classical sense. And uh, and I, I'm one of those people who thinks that it's a possibility for most people who come if they practice uh, uh, and they have a, uh, it's not just a general sense of practice, like shifting your attachment strategy is not just a general form of practice. You have to practice in a way that elicits the insights that you need then to, to move out of the, the, the grabbiness of, of a conditioned existence into an understanding of the nature of, of, of the world and self in that. Early on with Shinzen, um, he said uh, that you didn't need to solve the condition problems of conditioning that you could cut through that and become liberated and that all of those uh, conditions would then um, be eliminated. Um, and my experience of that was as, as my practice deepened and deepened that those uh, issues that came from adverse early conditioning were still limiting my uh, experience of, of life, limiting my experience of happiness, and also limiting my capacity to explore uh, in a deep way. Uh, limiting my capacity to find meaningfulness in, in um, uh, life. Uh, and so uh, I began uh, working with this other track. I happened to hear uh, quite by accident a, um, a lecture by Alan Shore, uh, which he gave at the Neuropsychiatric Institute at UCLA on disorganized attachment. And what I recognize in that 15 minutes of him describing the way that disorganized people operate in, in the world, that I was clearly a disorganized person and that there was an insight into the nature of how my life unfolded that you know, two decades of therapy had not provided and all sorts of other interventions had not uh, um, provided. Um, but uh, you know, in the late 90s, uh, there was very little on offer except for the emerging of the research in relationship to attachment. Um, and so uh, uh, that's really when my interest in uh, attachment and also meditation coincided because I recognized that there were certain uh, deficits that came from um, adverse attachment outcomes that uh, could be repaired uh, through 
meditation practice. Mainly what we're talking about here is mentalizing or metacognition. Um, in the Theravada uh, tradition, there's less conversation about that, but in, in the Tibetan uh, tradition, it's one of the, the, the features of, of the way that they talk about meditation. Mentalizing or metacognition means that you can track your thoughts, you can understand the uh, input that creates the uh, defining of the experience in a particular way, uh, uh, view the circumstances uh, that are happening, and then respond in a skillful way without becoming reactive. That takes a lot of uh, speed and tracking of what's happening in the present moment. When we look at the attachment lens, what we see is that if your caregiver was attentive to your mind states and inquired of you what they were, if they didn't know what was happening, that that would cause you to have to investigate what was going on and then be able to translate that uh, into language that you could communicate to uh, somebody else what was going on with your mind states, your views, uh, is another way of talking about it. Um, and in sharing that, in revealing yourself in that way, uh, if your caregivers were attentive and sensitive enough, reflect that back to you, uh, and in this way, illuminate in some sense for yourself what your experience of the conditions of the present moment were. And then also, uh, if they were skillful, uh, help you organize responses to those uh, conditions so that you could begin to explore the world in a way um, that allowed you to find meaningfulness in it. Um, and if they didn't do that, you may not be able to do that so easily. And so uh, this is part of that process of exploring. In meditation, of course, you're attempting to explore specific insights uh, that reveal the nature of the human condition, the nature of the world. Uh, and if you're not good at exploring, you're also not going to be good at exploring in meditation uh, the things that you need to discover in order to find uh, your liberation. And so all of these things come together in a way that I think is uh, really important in terms of uh, resolving uh, the uh, uh, householderness of lives, but also uh, has a direct payoff in your meditation practice because as you uh, develop your capacity to explore in the world, you also develop your capacity to explore in meditation. And if your capacity to explore is inhibited in the world, it's also inhibited in your meditation practice. So I think that for people that uh, do not have a secure functioning attachment and are in some ways uh, adversely impacted in exploration, that uh, organizing practice in a way that attends to that specifically and directly is a good way to go because you get the fruits not only of 
of uh, improving in your householder life, but also in your capacity to uh, discover the insights that are necessary uh, for your liberation. So if we um, begin to look at that exploration system and how it comes online, we are all born and uh, uh, helpless and in need of the attention of our caregivers for survival. Um, if you look at uh, uh, the, the capacities of the human baby when they're born and compare it, say, to the great ape, uh, human uh, great apes are born with the capacities of an 18-month old uh, human baby. Human babies, uh, if you haven't been around them, or maybe you have, can't even sit up. They can't roll over when they're born. Uh, they don't have the muscle strength to do that. They also don't have uh, developed brains. You have an intact brain stem, a partially formula, uh, developed right brain, not much in terms of the left brain. And so the early part of a, a child's life is, uh, an infant's life is really entirely dependent on the care that they receive. Uh, infants cry out to the world without even being able to differentiate people and then uh, the world responds. And depending on how the world responds, you begin to develop views, and we call them views in Buddhism, um, about the nature of yourself and your capacities and the nature of the world and how the world is likely to respond to you. If you have good enough caregivers, you, you move from a, a completely solitary, separate experience of self into a relational experience of the caregiver and yourself moving from auto-regulating to uh, externally regulating. So you, you begin to depend on somebody to come and take care of you, come and help regulate you. So uh, if you've been around babies, you'll know that between five and eight months, they develop something called stranger uh, anxiety that up until that time, anybody can really hold the baby and the baby's content. And then they begin to develop a hierarchy of people that they're interested in. This is the, the attachment list, really. Uh, and then they get very attached to the primary caregiver. And it's in that relationship that these uh, early views are developed. Uh, um, Around uh, 10 months or a year old, uh, uh, babies develop enough strength to actually begin to, to try and stand on two feet and then to learn to balance. Uh, before that, they sort of, uh, I had a friend who used to refer to the earlier stage as the blob stage. You put the baby down and the baby is there when you come back because they can't go anywhere. And then they sort of begin to, they call it creeping. They they can't really get up on all fours yet. They sort of slide themselves along, but they can only go, say, two or three feet in that stage. And then once they get up on all fours and can crawl, then they're able to just whiz around. And then when, once they get up on twos, um, they, they can really move. If you've ever seen, a let's say, a 10-month or a year-old baby, they pull themselves up and then they they use all of the things around them to balance so that they can begin to move. 
And this is really the place where your capacity to explore uh, begins. Up until then, really, you're totally dependent on uh, the lo your locomotion for the, the caregiver and you do whatever they want with you. There's something you can do about it. But once you develop the capacity to move on your own, uh, you can begin this process of exploring and and set your agenda and not the caregiver's agenda if they allow it, which is the piece that uh, is interesting to explore, I think, or uh, necessary to know. Um, infants, uh, small children need reassurance. So the attachment mechanism and the exploration mechanism are, are, are linked. In the beginning, a child uh, will crawl two or three feet away from the proximity, the immediate proximity of the caregiver, and then look around for reassurance. If the caregiver reassures them that it's safe for them to explore, they'll go a little bit further and a little bit further. Um, always wanting to be able to see the uh, caregiver, always keeping the caregiver in the visual field. Uh, in Western psychology, we really call this object constancy. The infants can't really hold the, the, the experience of the caregiver uh, unless they can see them. So uh, if the caregiver is present and reassuring, the child will move out of the sight line of the caregiver and then rush back in to make sure that the caregiver is still there. And if the caregiver is still there and reassuring, the child will begin to explore further and further. Uh, and uh, in this process of exploring further and further, begin to discover things that are actually meaningful to the child and then come rushing back and present them to the caregiver, look what I found, isn't this interesting? Isn't this important? Um, isn't my perspective of what's interesting and important valuable? This is the process of exploring. If you've ever been around a kid, they come with the broken bottle cap or the broken piece of this or the, the, the toy or whatever it is, and you take it from them and you ooh and ah and you give it back to them and they rush off and come right back with something else. And by the time they've done that 50 times in an hour, you're in a state of distraction from the banality of their discoveries. But if you communicate that to the child, then they begin to devalue their own interests. They begin to devalue their the importance of their own exploration, they become reluctant to share what's meaningful to them. But if you support a child in doing that, and you're constantly reassuring and constantly interested in their point of view, and uh, uh, elicit from them really what it is that they find fascinating with what they're doing and discovering, and delight in them, then they begin to value their exploration and they begin to uh, understand that the things that they find meaningful and that search for things that are meaningful includes this process of uh, sharing uh, with somebody else and this collaboration in exploring things that are rich and meaningful.
this all happens so early in life uh, that we may already have formed a view around the pursuit of things that are meaningful and the pursuit of exploration before autobiographical memory kicks in, which is, you know, between say four or five, six, somewhere in there. So you may already have had an impact on your capacity to find meaning and your capacity to explore prior to actually having memory of the experiences that cause those views to harden. What we can do then is uh, reverse engineer it so we can begin to explore your relationship to uh, exploration uh, and to see what might have happened. Um, we move from auto-regulating into external regulating into a collaborative experience uh, of exploring with our caregivers. And if all of that happens well, then we are actually able to determine what is interesting to us and actually able to uh, pursue it and also create a priority for it. And if we're impacted based on the caregiver's response to it, then it becomes a different kind of experience. Secure infants and children learn to explore, learn to share the experience of what they find out, and they have the expectation that people will be delighted to know what they find interesting and what they've discovered. And so they're quite interested in pursuing primary exploration, that is to say, engage in things that uh, in themselves are satisfying and then they're able to express the the discoveries and and share with someone else in a collaborative way and they're also able then to support the exploration of the people that they're in relationship to so that's that collaboration piece that comes in they go out, the attachment mechanism shuts off, the exploration system turns on, they go out in the world, they discover the things that are meaningful to them and they come rushing back to the people close to them and they express in an intimate way what they found out about being alive in the world. And there's an exchange. People who grow up to be dismissing are profoundly neglected as children. This doesn't mean that they give up on explore, exploring. Uh, they're neglected, so their needs are not met in a collaborative way. But that doesn't mean that they give up on getting their needs met. What the impact is on their exploration is that they shift out of a primary exploration where the exploration itself is satisfying into a secondary or pseudo exploration where they pursue getting the things that they need to be able to transact uh, the care that they want from other people because their experience of attempting to collaborate with other people never really develops. So we all start out as auto-regulators. If a caregiver comes consistently enough, we reorient toward externally regulating. And if the caregiver is reliable enough, we then move into a collaborative relationship around care with the caregiver. 
once we're in a collaborative relationship with the caregiver, we interject or we take in the skills of regulation that come in a collaborative setting and we develop the capacity to regulate ourselves independent of the other person while we're exploring, which creates the, the freedom to really pursue things that have meaning. Stas? I'm wondering about secure people that are unable to explore and also secure people that are unable to get sued with other people. So secure people who do not explore or? Yeah. So security is a range, of course. Um, uh, but it, 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 it is um, theoretically of the nature of exploration, I, of security that exploration is a piece of that. Um, if they're toward the dismissing range of security, then maybe the, the, they're less primarily, less oriented toward a primary exploration. Uh, if they're more toward the preoccupied end of the secure spectrum, uh, they may be more oriented toward uh, proximity seeking. Okay. But I, I don't see that as much, I don't think. And then okay. the second what about, question. Yeah, what about secure people that have difficulty settling through co-regulation or, you know, just the attachment system? Um, so then we're looking at the, the, the range of, ex, uh, of attachment experiences. The attachment system itself is pretty well settled in by the time you are um, three. And then we have the middle childhood period where you can have adverse experiences in uh, childhood, say bullying or some, or you know, uh, moving or the uh, the the family unit breaking apart, things like that, uh, that uh, adversely affect uh, the the relationship with other people. And then there's also the the post pubescent period where it's really around how uh, you resolve conflict uh, and other people resolve conflict and your ability to negotiate that. Um, so it is possible to say, develop these very rigid views about self and world based on the later experiences that then impact how you uh, um, negotiate relationships. So you're saying it's pretty rare. Would you also say that it's a lot easier to uh, change the later views than the earlier views? Um, I think that, um, so in, in my work, I, I, I have um, uh, people that are have the early security and then adverse con conditions later. Uh, but it it doesn't impact them in the same way that somebody who's inse insecurely attached. Um, they have difficulty in forming relationships and the relationships are more volatile than say somebody who's just um, uh, prototypically secure, but they're still able to pursue work. They're still able to pursue relationships. They're just not as easy. Um, whereas when you look at people that are more um, 
uh, adversely affected in their attachment the 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 capacities are much more limited in in people that are not in the secure range um, it's hard to generalize uh, because it's so specific to the person and also when you form relationships you bring your attachment ingredients the other person brings their attachment ingredients and you cook up uh, an attachment system for that particular relationship, which is not generalizable. Lucia. Yeah. Hi, George. Um, I'm Hi. wondering, and this is a question I've had for a while. Um, say for people who do develop are able to develop a secure attachment strategy in early childhood but then have uh, adverse conditions that um, make them develop very fixed views do you work with those people through ipf to resolve those views or is there any other protocol that's better suited for for that kind of uh, work well, I mostly do do it with IPF. Um, ideal parent figure protocol is what Dan Brown and his team developed. Um, when we, when I first started with, with working with this at Metagroup, we developed uh, meditation uh, strategies for developing mentalizing, and we did a psychoeducation on uh, attachment, but it didn't succeed in actually changing people's attachment underlying attachment strategy created a lot of skills for them to form more secure functioning relationships so it didn't change the underlying uh, attachment configuration what we need to do is remap the uh, perceptual database so that the the body mind has different information to formulate the experience of conceptual reality if i talk about this in a buddhist context so you have the object that can be sensed the capacity to sense when they meet consciousness of that sensing experience arises it's evaluated for urgency uh, if it's urgent it goes at the head of the line and it's processed faster most almost everything is considered unimportant and doesn't ever really come into consciousness and then pleasant if there's time and then in the once the processing order is established the unattached unfixated sensing experiences compared to the database and if there's an entry in the database that's close enough to what's happening in the present moment the information about that attaches to the sensing experience and it moves from ultimate reality into conceptual reality so uh this is a very eastern buddhist idea which is quite different than the Western idea of, of what, uh, how we create the working models of the world. In uh, Aristotle and um, others, uh, the idea was that we take in the uh, outside world the way that it is, and we create an internal working model of it. In Buddhist thought, we take in the data that's out there, and then we formulate it into a working model, and then we project the working model out. When you look at that uh, way of con of conceptualizing uh, what's actually happening, it's completely dependent on what's in the database. Uh, 
The other piece uh, that is, if something is happening in the experience of the present moment and you don't know what it is because you haven't had that experience, then imagination comes in and creates what the, ex the experience uh, can be. And then we create this tableau of, of reality in, in front of us that we all, we, all we all walk around in our own uh, conceptual reality that we've created based on our databases. One of the reasons that we keep repeating the same thing over, we, we engage in samsara in the way that we do is because we have our database. And if we don't implant in the database additional uh, uh, entries, then we keep formulating conceptual reality in the same way. So uh, in the visualization uh, work with IPF, we take the views that come up habitually uh, and then we layer in alternatives to that particular view so that when that experience arises, we can, re we can formulate conceptual reality in a different way than we habitually uh, do it. Uh, I always like the quantum physics uh, idea of wave and particle in each moment, what opens up in front of us is all of the possibilities, all of the choices without limit based on the conditions of the present moment. But as soon as we choose one, everything falls away except what we've chosen, and that becomes the reality. And because that's the place of reality, uh, in the next moment, what opens up is all of the possibilities from that point of view. And so you can get on these jags that are either beneficial or afflictive based on, on that. One of the things that we do in mentalizing, one of the things that we do in meditation, of course, is track that moment by moment that the arising of conceptual reality and view uh, it uh, in comparison to ultimate reality. The Pali word for this is Tajapanati the constant going back and forth between what am I sensing, what have I made, what am I sensing, what have I made, to ensure that the the accuracy of conceptual reality. But if you're not, if you don't train yourself to do that, you can easily just slip out of the experience of the present moment into the mental constructs uh, that are based on the database. Is that making sense? It's a, it's, a, it's a long answer and it's a fairly complicated answer, but um, selective focus is one um, Western psychology term for it. Um, the body-mind creates the experience of conceptual reality and it's very calorie intensive to do that. And so if the body-mind can save calories, brain calories, uh, it's very happy to do that. And one of the ways that it does that is by generating, uh, reusing old imagery. Have you ever lost your keys, looked everywhere for them, and then found them in a place that you'd already looked and you didn't see them there? That would be an example of the mind, the body mind using an old image and not red, creating a new image where the keys were in the new image. 
uh, my favorite statistic on this is that motorcycles with one headlight are nine times more likely to be in accidents than motorcycles with two headlights. The most common response of a driver of a car who runs a motorcycle off the road was, they weren't there. And this is particularly, what's particularly lethal for motorcycles is commuter routes, where people habitually drive back and forth in the same route, because they're not always using a current rendition of what's happening, they could be using an old version of what's happening. Uh, drivers of cars are looking for other cars, they're not looking for motorcycles. Is that making sense? So in meditation, of course, what we're attempting to do is understand the sensing experience, the pure sensing experience, and then what we make the pure sensing experience into, and seeing that we translate that sensing experience based on our database or based on imagination and create the tableau of the world, which may or may not be accurate depending on uh, the view that might interfere with that. The, the Buddha talked about it as the, the hindrances of uh, craving, aversion, restlessness, and agitation, sloth, and torpor, and skeptical doubt. But your attachment view can also get in the way, or you could develop the capacity for positive uh, views and, and, and distort the world in that way. But that's what uh, what we're trying to pursue, how your conditioning creates these rigid views that then affect the way that you create the world, that affect the way that you perceive what is possible in the world, uh, which may or may not be what's actually happening. Stas? All right, I'll try to keep it short. So like I was listening to music in one language today and then the next song was another language. And for a period of time, it was just sounds and no words. Right. So then it all snapped into place. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that would be a good example. Yeah. And I, I guess it's like, there's it's interesting to kind of see that unfixated reality and then see it snap into conceptual reality um i mean i think I, I guess i'm wondering with like shinzen's approach where it's like you don't need to change the conditioning versus like okay you need to change the database to alter what the conceptual reality is um i don't have a clear question i'm just wondering like i, I can see the advantage of seeing both and as a householder, it's kind of useless to be in the unfixated <laughs> reality at all times. Right. Um, I think that if the conditioning is really adverse, that it will interfere with the, the, the capacity to explore enough that discovering your way through the meditation path is going to be negatively impacted. And so it's important to develop the skill of meditation and explore the, the limitations of conditioning 
uh, and uh, move uh, out of that so that then the capacity to explore develops to the point that you can find your way through. Okay. What do you think about, I feel like a lot of the, like any instructions or like I'm reading a lot of textbooks for education and I feel like it's, they're trying to like teach the, this very limited self how to do things. And right. uh, I feel like there's kind of this vast unfixated expanse that I can just, you know, take a back seat and still things happen just as well. Um, right. I think that uh, ultimately the goal is to be able to move between the two without getting stuck either fixated or unfixated. Um, and that it's fascinating what, where the grab is. Uh, so for instance, in the, the, the six lamps practice that I'm doing, I can easily get into that unfixated, unfixated, not self state. And it's incredibly pleasant to be there. And then I can become quite irritated at the ordinariness of, of householder life um, and begin to develop a preference for the, the, the state that comes from practice and not actually be able to maintain the state that comes in the moment of practice in the householder task. And so that's the edge of where my practice is, is just being completely content with the uh, ordinariness of you know cleaning up after dinner uh, as opposed to sitting in meditation and and having a, a, a vast vastly expansive state of mind right so that's limiting your exploration um it's in some sense it's limiting my enjoyment of just this human condition, this human existence. Christian? Um, so you mentioned a couple different things beyond just the attachment that affects, you know, someone's ability to explore, make their way in the world. And I'm curious about your thoughts because it seems like a big component um, I don't know how quickly the world was changing in the, you know, in the time of the, the Buddha or, or <laughs> whatever, but um, it seems like the way society is structured would also have a big effect on someone's ability to explore, whether it's, you know, it, 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 like sort of materialism, um, you know, or, or, you know, I get the sense that, that people that kind of, or the sort of gentrification that like people that move into neighborhoods around around here, you know, and I'm sort of a gentrifier myself, but um, that they're, you know, their like ability to be independent and wealthy is like so much greater than the people that live there in sort of, you know, have to rely on bigger communities and that they can afford to be really separate from, from the world and from everyone. And so, you know, I don't know if like, the the big the big issue the ever increasing issue is that society places limits that it you know my take is that it would push people to be more avoidant um even if that's not their background attachment style 
Um, so I, I like to say about uh, New York, uh, when I lived there in the 70s, that it was a, a place to find a vast, open loft space to make artworks. Uh, and then 30 years later, it was the same space to hang the artworks that somebody else made 30 years prior to that, because the artist could no longer afford to live in the space because of the process of gentrification. Um, and and this is really that sort of primary or secondary exploration what is really meaningful and uh, how do you organize your life in such a way that you're actually in the pursuit of that whether it's living in a cold water loft space and painting or um, navigating the the power and wealth structures of our uh, culture because you had the the uh, effects of birth that allowed you to, to do that. Um, but still the question for the individual is, what is meaningful to me? And how can I organize my life in such a way that I spend uh, as much of my time engaged in that activity as I can? Um, setting aside resources not all exploration requires an intense amount of resources how do you find what's meaningful to you and then are you free to organize your life not uh, externally based on the structures of society but internally mm -hmm. are you free then to pursue that and really what uh, this discussion has been mainly about is the uh, interference in the, the, the internal freedom to really organize your life in such a way that that's what you're pursuing. Is that making sense? Yeah, so it sounds like the sort of personal choice is in understanding like really what, just how much secondary exploration you need to do and to not like live, I guess, based in fear that all you have to do is secondary exploration or else you'll, you know, you'll be killed or you won't be able to survive, but that, you know, that you can actually put the energy that you have into primary exploration as much as possible. Right. And to, to really understand what that is, what it is that's meaningful, and then also to be free to organize your life in such a way. Well, I'm going to talk about this for a, a few weeks, but one of the things that happens to people that are are not free to explore is they organize their lives in such a way where they can't do it and it relieves them of the 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 need to explore so they set up their lives in such a way where exploration is impossible um, and in some ways uh, that is relieving of of the need to explore um, but I think what uh, we should do some practice uh, since this is uh, about meditation practice. And so um, I thought that we would begin by doing some basic um, see here, feel meditation, and then go into uh, focus in, focus out strategy, uh, and then uh, um, uh, maybe that's enough for tonight. Um, 
I will give the instructions as we meditate uh, and uh, we'll begin with a few minutes of concentration practice just to settle in. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So, Lucia? Yeah, um, I feel like I have good enough, uh, or, or get the technique and I'm able to do it well enough. And I'm wondering what's the objective of this technique? Like, where am I going with it? Like with concentration, I know I'm trying to build up to jhana and so on. Um, with this one, I don't know where I'm going with it. So, um... You're developing your mentalizing capacity in those three dimensions that I mentioned during the, the meditation. But then once you get the basic technique, this is where the exploration piece comes in and how you want to organize your meditation uh, exploration. I, I generally teach the progress of insight, the Mahasi Sayadaw map of exploration. Uh, the, um, and then you, you move through stages are meant to provide the insights that will lead you to liberation. So the first stage is the Nama Rupa, which is the exploration of uh, uh, the sense gates and mind. So that when you do this technique, if you were going to pursue that insight, what you would be watching is where the mind takes you, what it selects out of the full range of sensing experiences to focus on to notice that there, there's a preference for some sensing experiences over others, there's an aversion to some sensing experiences over others, and you begin to track that process of the mind taking these uh, snapshots out of the whole range of, of possibilities, um, which, are, which we would then use to explore how um, that selection creates uh, conceptual reality. It isn't as if we take a survey of everything that's in front of us and then create an accurate picture. What we do is we take a survey of things that are interesting to us and create a, a tableau from that. Uh, so that if we come into an environment that's rich with things that we are interested in and are of value to us, then we think that the environment is rich. And if we come to an environment that's absent of those uh, um, preferences, then we think that the environment is challenged or boring. So that would be the, the first investigation that you would use the technique for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm wondering here if the insight is that of preference itself, or if it's worthwhile to investigate my own preferences and perhaps the genesis well, of that. I'm well, what you'll discover is your own preferences because that's what you'll, if you don't inhibit the mind, that's what it's going to be selecting. Just the things that are your preferences. Is that making sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I've, I've definitely noticed that. And then what? So then what you do is um, the next uh, insight uh, is the exploration of conditionality. 
And so what you'll notice in that is that one, the con current conditions set up the possibility for the next conditions. So uh, I talked about that earlier in terms of quantum mechanics. From the perspective of this moment, what opens up in front of you is all of the possibilities that you could choose in the next moment. As soon as you pick one, all of the possibilities except for the one that you picked uh, vanish and you're just in the experience that you picked. And from that perspective, what opens uh, is the possibility in the next moment of all of the possibilities that are there. And so what you begin to explore is, do I actually see all of the possibilities or is my view limited in some way that I just see uh, a limited range of possibilities? Um, then that's, the, that's actually beginning to reveal the content of the database. But also, for instance, let's say your attention is drawn to sound space and you're listening to a bird in the present moment. And then your attention is drawn to visual thinking experience and what you're viewing is the, the, the bird that you've associated with the sound of the bird singing. But it's an image from childhood and all of a sudden you're drawn out of the present moment into the experience of remembering a bird singing in childhood that then drops you down into an emotional experience that is supporting that memory of, of the bird uh, from childhood. And then the body fills with an emotional state and you come back in the present moment and the emotional state that's associated with the memory that was triggered by the bird singing in the present moment colors the experience of the bird singing in this moment with a kind of uh, melancholy. That if you didn't pay attention to the sequence of those things, you would just uh, experience in the present moment the sound of the bird singing and it would be uh, colored with a melancholy that isn't actually coming from the experience of the present moment, but it's coming from the way that the database created the experience and understanding of what the bird sound was. Is that making sense? So that you're then able to track all of that happening so that you can come back into the experience of the present moment and be in the experience of the bird singing now and understand that these other things are activated in the process of understanding that and that you have the complete experience then of everything that's happening without losing the present moment and getting pulled into the thinking experience. So that would be the, the nature of conditionality. Um, you're in sound space, then you're in visual thinking space, then you're in the experience of the body, then you're back in the experience of sight space. Um, and you're able to track all of that. That's conditionality. Um, because you were in the body, maybe uh, you move from the emotional experience that was uh, created by the memory into a physical pain that's in the body, but you wouldn't have noticed the physical pain in the body if you'd stayed in auditory experience because it was outside of the body that that was happening. So then you begin to notice that the mind has preferences to what it pays attention to and that you begin to create the experience of the world based on that those preferences and those selections, and it's not a complete picture. 
Is that making sense? Yeah, I'm wondering if what you're saying is that in noticing the way your conditioning affects your perception of reality, you can liberate yourself from your conditioning and experience right. reality in other, in that actual uh, practice of see, hear, feel. Right. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Got it. Okay, great. Then uh, the third one is to explore the mar three marks of conditioning, anatta, nicca, and dukkha, not self, impermanence, and then the nature of the human condition. And you, and you move through that progression, developing the insights. And of course, uh, you're, you're going along the surface, and then you're going a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. So preference, conditionality, and three marks of existence. Right. And that's written, do you have that written somewhere? Is there like a, a, a word doc that has- Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, the Manual of Insight is the full text and then the Progress of Insight is the chapter from that that people refer to. Okay. Um, either one. Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, thank you for coming. Um, we have a level two class starting next week. Uh, it's it's uh, going to uh, close on Monday, so that if you want to register for it, you need to do that before uh, close of the day Monday. Uh, we are going to do another level two in January. Um, the mentoring uh, component for level two this time is full. Um, but if but if you wanted to take the class and have mentoring available, uh, the January 11th class will will open on Monday, and you can register with mentoring for that. There are uh, four spaces left in the retreat in December, so if you're interested in going on the retreat, I would register for that pretty soon. Um, we're going to do a level one series in October, and that's up on the website if you want to take a look at that. Uh, that's everything that's coming up for the rest of the year. Uh, thank you for coming to class. Thank you for your practice. I offer the teaching freely, uh, but I do hope that you'll make a donation, help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link uh, to make a donation on our website. Thank you for coming and we'll see you, uh, I hope, soon on the path somewhere. Bye now. Thanks, George. Yeah. Thank you, George.